As always, we just want to invite uh, the Holy Spirit's presence here, here in this place. And as you look at your heart, you just say to God, God, fill me right now and speak to me. And may you be all-powerful in our lives. You know, it's interesting. We're going to deal with this subject called, uh, Did God Die? As I began to think about it, my mind went back to kind of that historical moment in time, to 1966. Um, As you look at this, as you study the subject of God, there came this point in this counterculture uh, movement that was happening in America to ask the question, did God die? Because it looks like he's pulled himself out of society. And what was interesting was that Time Magazine came out with... uh, a magazine front, it was actually the first time they had no picture but only text driven on Time magazine. It became one of the best and most controversial uh, issues they ever uh, uh, released. But it seemed like God had become irrelevant to society and to the counterculture of the 1960s. And if you look at that image, you, you imagine how that would be on a newsstand as you're walking out and you're getting your groceries and you're looking at that and you're asking the question, is God dead? And I'm sure a lot of people probably said, it seems like God is dead at least to me. The text was a reference to uh, a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche. Nietzsche didn't believe in God, but he said people's idea of God is dead because self-centered man had killed the idea of God. And so rather than looking at it from a perspective of is there a God or is there not a God, Nietzsche simply said, well, maybe we've become so self-centered, we just don't have time for God. The the book of Psalms says, the, the fool has said, no God for me. There may be a God, but I don't want God in my life. The other thing that came out of that that movement, that, uh, that God is dead movement, that sparked controversy in a lot of the seminaries around the world, believe it or not, those who are dedicated to studying the idea of God, was maybe we can have theology and Bible and Christianity without God. Maybe we don't even need God. Maybe we just need a God concept and God kind of ideas in order to kind of function. One of my favorite preachers that... Um, I was able to connect with before he died, not too many years ago, was a man by the name of S.M. Lockridge. He pastored a church in San Diego for many years, but was really renowned, and his, his messages live on. But when he heard the news that God was dead, he preached a sermon asking some questions, and it goes something like this. I heard God is dead. If God is dead, then who assassinated him? And if God is dead, what coroner was called to examine the body? If God is dead, I want to know who signed the death certificate. If God is dead, I want to know who was so well acquainted with the one pronounced dead that he could identify the deceased. If God is dead, what obituary column do you find his name? And if God is dead... Why wasn't I notified? Because I am a next to kin. He really kind of brought it down to where we can live and ask and think. And when we ask, did God die? In the context of the atonement, we're asking, when Jesus died on the cross, because he was the God-man, did God die? How could Jesus, the incarnate God, 
die. God took on human nature, was born in the likeness of men, we're told in the Bible. He became obedient, the Bible says, even to death, the death on the cross. But God saw that faithfulness, God honored that faithfulness, and raised him from the dead. You see, it was Jesus' human nature that died. If the being of God died, the universe would disappear. Because God sustains all things by the word of his power. What keeps everything in balance? What allows this, this planet to function the way it does? What allows for the right combination of oxygen and light and temperature and heat and all those things? We can say it's just a, a cosmic, colossal coincidence, or we could say it was God. So we are living in a day of unparalleled corruption, when we want to ask ourselves, where is God? I mean, one only has to take a moment and look through the headlines of what's happening today in our world, and you wonder, is there any moral base? Is there any standard? Is there any basis here for this? While we see Washington in the process of trying to cover up everything they've been caught at, we understand the word atone means to cover, that God covers sin. You know why you can be free from your sin? It is because God covers your sin. Because God says, when you put your faith in me and your trust in me, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to cover it. I'm going to make it go away. I'm not going to hold you culpable for your sin. We have unanswered questions about Benghazi. And everybody's trying to cover it up. Nobody wants to testify. Nobody wants to come clean. We have the Fast and Furious operation. Nobody wants to talk about that anymore. Now we have NSA spending $80 billion a year on gathering secret information. We have President Obama opening Verizon stores all across the nation. We have the IRS targeting Christian and conservative groups. And everyone seems to have a memory lapse. And everybody wants to point a finger. Everybody wants to cover it up. It seems that we're in the midst of a coup d'etat by the present regime. A takeover of what we know to be America. A takeover of what we know to be a place that had values and a place that had standards and a place that had truth. Wake up is a time and is a message for America. Wake up to what is happening and why it is happening. Because God is being ushered out the back door and the moral foundation of our nation is being ignored by the Washington elite who just tell us, trust us. Trust us. It's interesting that the, the anniversary of that book, 1984, has just come and gone and everything that was spoken so many years ago seems to be the most relevant thing on our mind. What's happening in our world reminds me of a car that my grandfather gave me. Right out of seminary, I needed a car, and my grandfather gave me an old Plymouth. Today, it would be considered not a classic, but just a really old, ugly Plymouth. <laughs> and my grandfather was a horrible driver. In fact, it seems like every time he went somewhere, he got in a wreck. But he always got it repaired, and it was bright red and had one of those vinyl tops. If you've ever seen those, those white vinyl tops. And it had white kind of almost leather in it. And we called it Big Red. And the kids loved Big Red. 
And one time I remember driving it, and, and uh, my wife was in front of me, and as Tammy was driving down the road, I was behind her, and I realized the car ran sideways. It had a bent frame. If you've ever seen those, it's hard to drive behind a car like that because you start turning sideways in your seat trying to figure out how to go. And this car was out of alignment. And it was out of alignment in the body, not just the tires. And I remember taking it in, and, and I wanted somebody to look at it. Can you straighten the frame? Because it, it's not good. It's wearing tires out, and it's running sideways down the car. And I'm standing there in the little waiting room, and I hear a guy holler at the mechanic in the back, and he said, hey, what's the deal on that car? And he yelled back, it's got brain damage. <laughs> and he said, brain damage? No, I said frame damage. And whenever I think about what's happening in our world, I always think they've got brain damage because they need the mind of Christ and you and I need the mind of Christ. We can't function without Jesus. And we try to live our life in some kind of a Christian ethic and moral base that lacks the Holy Spirit of God. And sooner or later, you're going to run out of your own resources. You're going to run out of your own steam. You're going to run out of your own zeal. And you're going to say, why am I here and how do I function anyway? You know, it's interesting that there's some questions that come to mind in all of our hearts from time to time. And one of them is this, what is death? All of us have been touched by death somewhere in our life whether it's a spouse or a friend or a family member, somebody has been touched by death. Death is simply separation. It is separation. I can't see that person anymore. Another one is why is death a necessary part of the universe? It was because a man by the name of Adam and his wife Eve chose to rebel against God and say, no God for me. And that was the first cover-up. Remember what they did? Adam went over and found a big fig leaf, displayed it proudly, and said, look at me, I'm okay, I'm covered up from God. He can't see my sin as if his sin was somehow tied to, to his nakedness. It was the exposure of his soul that made him feel guilty. And what happens after I die? Well, the Bible says it's appointed for all men to die once. And then we stand before Almighty God. And we're going to be talking about life after death. We're going to look, be looking at out-of-body experiences and all those things next week. So we just wanted to kind of keep you in the mix for that. Look what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, your sin, God took upon himself and he became sin for us because the wages of sin is death, separation from God. And when he took that upon himself, he died to that sin because he paid the price. He was buried and he rose and he conquered death. Now, this idea of a substitute is a great, great principle. And if you begin to think about it, think about it like this. When I was in junior high, I had a friend and I didn't particularly like him. You ever had friends like that? They're my friend, but I don't particularly like you, but you know, you'll do for now. You ever had a friend like that? Maybe not. Well, Gene was my friend, and we were sitting in seventh grade, and, and, uh, and I was fooling around with some rubber bands, and I was shooting them at the teacher when she would turn her back. And I wasn't a very good shot, so I kept missing her, and, and finally, you know, I got one, and, and she bent over to pick up some chalk, and I got her. 
right? You know where? She jumped up, was not happy about the whole thing. And she said, who did that? And Jean looked at me and ratted me out and said, Phil did. Well, we're not going to end this here. And I said, you see all those rubber bands? Those are the ones that Gene shot, and he missed you. <laughs> now, somebody was going to be a substitute here, and it looked like it was going to be both of us. So off we went to the principal's office. I got there. I think in those days, principals really enjoyed giving the board. I don't think it was just we're trying to correct the moral guidance of this child. I think they really liked it. In fact, it was probably, if I'm a junior high principal, it's probably the highlight of my whole day. Because I'm frustrated beyond belief, and a couple of kids come in and go, yeah, I'm getting even right now. And I remember walking in there, and he had a board about this long, and he had holes drilled in it, and he had rubber bands around it. And I said, what are the rubber bands for? And he said, it's to make it sting just a little bit more. That's when I knew he enjoyed it. Two-handled board, he hit Gene. Gene immediately burst into tears, crying, you know, serves him right, ratting me out. And I said, I'm not going to cry. He took that board. He swung it twice as hard at me as he did at Gene. It would have killed an average man. I could feel the water building up in my eyeballs. Every pore in my body was saying, release, release, release. And I was determined I wasn't going to cry. And I did. I held strong for about four seconds. And then I burst out in tears. And on the way back, Gene said to me, why did you do that? And I said, do what? said, rat me out and tell him. I said, because you ratted me out. And there's this idea we want to shift blame in our life, isn't there? I can't be guilty. It must be somebody else. You know when the first step of really knowing God is coming to the realization that you're guilty, that I'm guilty, that we stand before God sinful. You may not be as sinful as somebody else, but you've committed at least one sin in your life. Most people at least agree to that. I want to show you a story from the Old Testament. It's from Genesis 22. It's a story that's probably familiar to you. It's about Abraham. And it says in verse 20, in verse 1 of chapter 22, and it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Did you ever stop to think that what's going on in your life right now might be a test? That this is not just not things not going well for you, or this is not just a challenging moment, that God is testing you to see how you're going to respond to him? God took this man, Abraham, and it says he tested him. And he said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, now take your son, your only son. I want you to see the parallels with what Abraham experienced and what Jesus did at Calvary. There are so many parallels in this passage, it's amazing. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And a burnt offering was for the sin. It was a sin offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose, and he went in the morning, and he saddled his donkey. He took two young men with him, and Isaac his son, and they split wood for the burnt offering, and they arose and went to the place where God had told him. And then on the third day, we begin to see these parallels, how we see it's the only son, and then we see the wood placed on the back like the cross was placed on the back of Jesus there. 
We see him going there as the burnt offering. And, and it was on the third day that Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship. And notice what he says, and we will come back to you. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham believed that God would be able to raise him from the dead. Abraham never doubted whether he was going to go through with what God called him to do, as, high, as heinous as it seems right now. But he believed that God, the God who could, who could give life to Abraham and life to Sarah, would give life to this one Isaac who he had promised to be the, the, the progenitor and the, and the leader of this great race of people that we know today as Israel. He took the fire in the hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Can you imagine that conversation? But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? In other words, Isaac is saying, I'm figuring this out, and it's not looking good. Human sacrifice was not unusual in that day. It was not unusual to try to appease the gods. This says something of Isaac and, and his trust for his father. It's the same kind of trust you and I have to have for our father. You may not know what course he's taking you down. You may not like the direction it's going. It may feel like an obstacle on every hand. It may feel like it's not going to win and it's not going to work. But you have to trust the father. That if he does take everything away, he can raise it back up. Remember, God can do more in five seconds than you can do in a lifetime. God can bring about the restoration of all things. God can bring about the fullness of His being in you any moment of the day, but you have to be there trusting Him. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide Himself. That's the principle of a substitute. That the wages of our sin is death. But Jesus Christ came and He died on the cross. He presented Himself. And we see this picture into the future from Abraham's perspective. God will provide himself a burnt offering, a lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. And the rest of the story, you know, he ties his son down. I'm sure that Isaac could have overpowered his father. By this time, Abraham is quite old. And here's this young teenager, probably strong from working and, and living in that environment. And he willingly laid himself down and he allowed his father to tie him down. He prepared to kill him. He prepared to take his life. And Abraham lifted up his knife to take the, 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 the life of his son. And the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Stop, Abraham, I know that you trust God. And Abraham looked and on, on over to one side was a ram that was caught in the thicket there and that was the sacrifice and it says it was there that God revealed himself as the provider God. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You see, when you will take your faith right to the edge, right to the very limit, that's when God shows up. See, natural man wants to say, God, you, if you'll just do all these wonderful things for me, I can trust you. No, believe me, God wants to take you and he wants to take us, influencers, to the edge of faith. To where you say, God, if you don't come through, he wants to take away everything that we have, that we trust in, that we think we can get done in our own strength and say, let me show you what I can do. But I won't do it until you go to the very edge of your faith. And if you're not living there, you're not living in the excitement of the Spirit of God. 
You see, that it wasn't a suggestion to say walk by faith and not by sight. It was really a directive from God saying this is the only way it's going to work. This is it. When we think about this idea of death, I want to just give you a quick review. There are three kinds of deaths mentioned in Scripture, and the first one is pretty obvious. It's physical. And that just means a separation of your soul from your body. When you die, to be absent from this physical body is to be present with the Lord. But there's also a spiritual death, and that's also separation, and that means a separation from your soul, of your soul from God Almighty. That you're not with God. You don't know God, and that's what's called spiritual death. That's how we all live before we come to know Jesus Christ, before we're born into his kingdom. We're spiritually separated from God. But then there's also an eternal death, and that's spiritual death that's made permanent. That there comes a point at which, when we physically die, it's no longer possible to restore our relationship with God. It is appointed to all men to die once, and then the judgment, the Scripture says. You see, the great truth is that God takes our place. His great love is that you don't have to die spiritually. You don't have to stay in that condition. You don't have to be eternally separated from God. That great humanitarian, Gandhi, marveled at Jesus. He liked his teaching, but he couldn't really relate to this idea of a sacrifice for sin. Listen to what he wrote in his biography. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. His death on a cross was a great example to the world, but there was, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue to it, my heart could not accept. And most of mankind looks at Jesus like that. He did something good and something noble, but the fact that it was God in the flesh who died and then was buried and rose from the dead, that is foreign, and that takes a spiritual mind to understand. Over history, man has tried to formulate what exactly did Jesus do, and they came up with theories. One of them was called a ransom theory. And it was simply that Jesus' death paid a ransom to Satan, that Satan held us into his hands, and Jesus came and said, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll bargain with you, Satan, I'll give you me. Satan, not understanding or having the the belief that Jesus could actually rise from the dead, said, yes, I will give you mankind, but, uh, but I'll take you and I'll hold you, but Jesus rose from the dead. But that theory falls short. There's also a theory called the moral influence theory. The death of Jesus was seen as just being a reminder of how much God loves us. Didn't go any further than that. Didn't remove sin, didn't remove guilt, didn't do anything. It just, God really loves you. Let me show you how much. Then there was the example theory that Jesus' death was only an example of how we should trust God and a payment for sin was not even necessary. But the Bible teaches that Jesus died for you. Look what it says in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, that's him, for the unjust, that's you and me. That he might bring us to God. How do we get to God? By the payment of sin on Jesus' behalf, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Isaiah the prophet wrote of this 700 years before Jesus. Listen to what he said. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we stricken him, we, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes are we healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Think about this. If, I, if this hand can represent our life, and this other hand, sin, and, God, and our sin holds us down, it keeps us from having freedom. But Jesus comes along and he says, let me do this for you. Let me take this sin away. And he puts his hand out. He puts his hand out. Let me hold. Let me take. I'll bear your sins for you. And you can be free to live your life. I was on an airplane traveling from Tel Aviv back to the United States a number of years ago. I had taken a group there and I was coming back by myself and I had my Bible with me and there was a woman getting on the plane and she had two little kids and I was helping her. She had no one around to help and so I just helped her and got everything kind of seated and and, uh, we were actually seated on the same row together by some miraculous event that happened there. And as I began to talk to her, she said, well, what's your background? What do you do? And we began to talk. And I told her, um, you know, well, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor of a church. And she thought that was interesting. And her faith was Judaism. And I said, you know, I have a great question for you. I said, I just want to get your interpretation. Will you tell me something? And I opened up my Bible to Isaiah 53 and to this passage. And I showed it to her. And I said, would you just read that? And then would you tell me what you think that's saying? Just give me your insight as a person of Judaism, not a Christian, because I'm curious. And she read it, and she looked up at me, and then she looked down again, and she read it again. And, uh, and, uh, and, and there was a bit of concern on her face. And I was a little afraid, maybe I've offended her in some way. And I said, well, what do you think? She said, well, this is clearly Jesus. This is clearly Jesus. And I said, well, but, but your faith does not believe that that's Jesus, but Yes, but this is our prophet. This is our book. And she was faced with this dilemma. This prophet who wrote 700 years prophetically before Jesus ever came, and this is just a portion of a great section that deals with who is Jesus and what did he do for us. And we had a most wonderful dialogue. It didn't end with me trying to convert her. It didn't end with me converting her. It ended with her thinking and praying and said, I will study this more and I will look into this. And I, only eternity will tell what happened from that conversation. But it's interesting that a set of outside eyes looked at that and said, this is Jesus. You see, the decision in all of life is always in your hands. You are where you are today because of a decision you made. In every aspect of your life, you are where you are. In Romans chapter 6, it tells us something here. It says, for when you were slaves to sin, when you were a slave to sin, you followed sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which now make you ashamed? You see, as a Christian, I can look back on my life, I can look back on my life before Christ, and I can look at a lot of stuff that I did, and guess what? It was really fun. And I could tell you stories that would make you cry. They're so funny about sin. And then you read this passage and you ask, but what benefit did I get from the things that now make me ashamed? What value did I have? For the end of those things, the Bible says, was death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have, become, you have the fruit of holiness and in the end, everlasting life. 
You know, when I read that, I, I looked at my own life and I looked back over all that God has done and all the ups and downs and all the struggles and, and all the, the things that how God has shaped me. And I realized, you know what? I have always been in the middle, middle of a miracle and just never did know it. And right now you and we, church, are in the middle of a miracle. Whether we see it, whether we know the depth of it, what the ramifications of it, we do not know. This past week on Monday, we made the big commitment to our building. We transferred, we wired $100,000 into escrow. And I have to tell you, it was one of those things where I go, oh, this is really happening. This is money we don't get back. We're committed. We're committed to what God is doing. It's the middle of a miracle. You know, your life is like a little microcosm of miracles that happen all throughout the day. The one thing that I I really believe is powerful, and I want to read this to you, and I want you to say this with me. And I just wrote it as I thought about what we're doing here, and it's a positive confession. And here it goes like this. In Jesus' name, my sins are forgiven. I will not listen to the voice of the enemy that tries to rob me of my joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Today is a day of victory. God is arranging circumstances and bringing people into my path in order to fulfill His divine purpose. I am a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Satan is defeated in Jesus' name and has no authority over me, over my family. I praise you, Jesus, for your blood that cleanses me from all sin. You know, if you start making positive confessions like that, and you acknowledge what God has done and what God is doing in your life, you'll be surprised how God will work in your life. You know, a story is told of a young couple who had been invited to a, to a gala, a very, very uh, exquisite and very unique invitation had been given. And they were so excited because they really didn't fit into high society as everybody else did. They didn't have great wealth or great position or great power, but they got invited because they knew someone. They took what money they had and they, they, they got the clothes that would be appropriate to wear to that. And then they remembered a friend they had, a, an older lady who was very wealthy and, and she had always been a friend to them and they went to her and they said, you know, we're going to this gala and, and my wife needs something, your, your priceless pearls, would, would you loan those to us just for the night? She said, of course. She gave them the pearls and they went and everyone noticed the pearls. They were exquisite. And throughout the night they felt like millionaires. And the night slipped away, and it got late, and they they got in their car, and they went home. And when she got home, she reached up to take the pearls off of her neck, and they were gone. And she was in a panic, and they looked everywhere. They went back to the car. They retraced their steps. They went everywhere they could find, and they realized they were gone. They were not going to be found at all. Now, not only were they faced with a financial dilemma, they were faced with the embarrassment they had lost, the woman's priceless pearls. And so they went and they had a a, a duplicate copy made and it cost them everything they had. In fact, their whole life was spent trying to pay off over month after month for these priceless pearls. As time went on, they, they had returned them to the lady and never told her that they had lost them. They just said, here's your pearls back and she took them and put them away. But over time, she grew older and, and she became very sick and was on her deathbed. And they, the guilt of just not 
being honest about the pearls kept eating away from them, not only the financial disaster it brought on their family. So they went to the old lady, and she was laying in her deathbed, and they said, we have something we want to tell you. The pearls you loaned us so many years ago, we lost them, and we went out and we found the right jeweler, and he made a duplicate set, and they, they were priceless, and we spent our entire fortune replacing your, your pearls. And she laid there for a moment, not knowing what to say, and the first words out of her mouth were, you fool. You fool. No one ever lends out the real pearls. They were paste. And you spent your life and your energy and your emotion on that which was counterfeit. You fool. And Jesus looks at us when we spend our life on that which doesn't matter. And he says, you fool. What would you give in exchange for your soul? What price do you put on your eternal soul? And you spend your days and your nights and your money and your emotions on the things that don't matter. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot. God wants us to honestly look at our life. Honestly look at our life. Don't look at it through the lens of religion. Don't look at it through the lens of anything else. Just Honestly, look at your life. Do you feel forgiven from God? Do you believe that you stood before God today, He would welcome you into His his kingdom as a son or a daughter? We need to embrace the life of God. We do that by faith. We do that by saying, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead to give me life. I believe the scripture that says if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, here's the promise. We will be saved. From what? From death. From separation. Not the physical, but the spiritual and the eternal. I would ask you today, if you have any doubt in your heart about your eternal destiny, would you seek God right now? Would you Search after God. Would you pray and receive Christ right now? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to this moment right now and in this time of really consideration of who we are before you, God, if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with you, we would say that, yes, we have sinned, and if we believe your Bible is true, if we believe God is true, that that, that's, that sin has caused a separation. It means that we don't know how to relate to God and we don't know how to get to God. We don't know how to love God. But God, you've made a way through Jesus on the cross who died there on the cross for our sin to take away the separation, to give us the gift of eternal life. So I want to ask you today, would you, as you listen, whether you're listening on live stream or in Abu Dhabi or in Big Bear or wherever you are in the world, 
in this auditorium. Would you be willing to seek after God right now? Would you pray with me a prayer like this one? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were buried according to the Scriptures and you rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. That you've come to give me life and you offer me right now eternal life. So I receive that life in Jesus' name. I receive it by faith because I believe that your word is true and that Jesus is true. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for giving me the gift of eternal life. That may have been your prayer today. And if it was your prayer, I'm going to ask you just to look this way as a step of faith. Just look at me right now. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. Just look right here. God bless you. All of you. Thank you. Anybody else? God bless you. Step of faith is what saves you. Not saying words. It's not repeating what I tell you to repeat. It's not even reading the Bible or going to church. It's really about your faith in a God who loves you. A God who says, when you call on my name, I will be there and I will save you and I will rescue you and I'll take away the separation of death. I will do that for you because I love you. It's not because you're a good person. It's not because you've done good stuff. Not because you've been baptized or done some ritual or memorized some catechism. It's because your faith in me and what I did is why I save you. Those of you who prayed that prayer, those of you who received Christ, we want to hear from you. We want to know more about that journey. So please, touch base with us afterwards or email us. Connect with us out at the, in the foyer and, and let's, let's get you on this journey of, of growing in Christ's likeness and loving Jesus with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And let's worship Him, the God of this universe, the God who loves us all. Would you stand as we worship the Lord together right now?